you know, when I look at it, I don't think well, we're going to have another hundred dollars next year. That's not what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, you know, we're going to sell a perpetuity of a hundred dollars, right? Now that's not always the case, you know, because some things will burn off the value, but generally that's what I'm hoping for. And that's what I'm trying to do is figure out a way so that I can make an extra hundred dollars on this deal this month so that I can make a potential buyer see that he could make that hundred to and have him underwrite that money. And it doesn't matter to me if it's an expense savings or if it's an income savings. And the biggest thing you can do to impact income is typically how you manage occupancy and rent. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the fourth season of Ready to Scale. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. Real estate investing is not rocket science, but it's not a fairy tale either. It's an incredible investment vehicle that builds and grows wealth. I have done it, and this is why so many of the wealthiest people in America and in the world, actually, invest in real estate as well. Listen in every week to learn about all the different real estate asset classes, which strategies experienced and successful investors use to live their best lives and the processes to do it. Don't reinvent the wheel. Just listen in every week to grow your knowledge along with me and to move your finances to a place where you can live an extraordinary life. This show is sponsored by my company, Blue Lake Capital, where we help passive investors grow their wealth through large multifamily investments and funds. To learn more about my company and invest in with me, visit www.bluelake-capital.com. Welcome to Ready to Scale Season 4. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Ready to Scale. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman, broadcasting today from Phoenix, where I'm visiting some properties. And today on a podcast, I'm going to host our own Neil McDonough. He's our asset manager at Boulay Capital. And, you know, he oversees the company's portfolio across the U.S., he has over 25 years of experience in asset management, due diligence, value add, budgeting, and asset repositioning. So, you know, he's going to share a lot of good information with you that is going to help you become maybe a little bit more informed investors. And before he joined Blue Lake Capital, Neil was a senior asset manager for Taurus Investment Holdings, and he was responsible for almost a billion in assets under management. So on top of that, he's a board member and former president of the Real Estate Investment Advisory Council in Boston, and he's a member of the Urban Land Institute. And when it comes to education, he holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in finance from Boston College and a Master's of Business Administration from Babson College. Without further ado, I want to welcome Neil to the show. Hi, Neil. Hi, Ellie. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to see you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, Neil has been working for Blue Lake and, you know, kind of overseeing the multifamily assets that we own. And it's really interesting to see, you know, there has been some changes over the past, you know, few months. And we're going to talk about that. But I wanted to start really talking, you know, when it comes to our discussion about assets I mean, obviously, you know, we're doing multifamily. These are the type of assets that you're managing at Blue Lake. And we all know that there's a little bit of inflation going on right now in the U.S. and in the world in general. You know, prices are going up, rents are going up, expenses going up. But before we touch on that, I would actually love 
to hear from you a little bit about your background and how you found yourself in real estate to begin with. I found myself in real estate because I like the real part of it. You know, I love the fact that that you can, you know, visit a neighborhood and visit properties and visit a competitive set. And, and those things are real. And you can try to understand what undermines the decisions that people make when they end up getting involved in this piece of real estate. I have a good bit of experience actually with retail as well. And so then it's a question of you're looking at what is the customer, what is how is this product satisfying the customer's needs? And on a multifamily basis, you know, that it's the very same thing, right? It's, it's how does this product satisfy the customer, you know? And, you know, there's a, it's, there are really so many layers and it's fascinating, right? Because, you know, at the broader scale, you know, we're making a leveraged U.S. economy bet, right? When you're buying in real estate and then it becomes, if you're in a particular market, it becomes then more specific to that market, right? And then when you look further and you say, you know, what are the drivers of this market? And then what are the competitive drivers relative to the other properties that the potential residents could, you know, would consider, right? And how do you compete with them, right? So what you're always, from my perspective, you know, whether, no matter where you are in the process with a piece of real estate, you're always looking at that asset and you're saying, does it want to be, right? And sometimes people get assets beyond what I think they want to be. And so you don't want that. But, you know, what, what typically, you know, what I'm always looking for is, you know, where can we take this from a financial perspective or from a use perspective that the market will be happy about and the market will reward us? Yep. Absolutely. And I think this is actually a good segue to our discussion about asset. When it comes to inflation, you know, there's several asset classes from the beautiful luxury A plus, you know, assets all the way to C and D assets, which are the older assets that you can usually find in struggling, you know, neighborhoods. And in between there's B assets. In your opinion, and if you can talk a little bit about, you know, inflation that is going on in the U.S. right now and how that impacts real estate, but I would also love to hear from you, which multifamily asset classes do you think is most resilient to the current inflation that we're experiencing in the U.S. right now? So, you know, I would look at that from, you know, one of the things that's been particularly a challenge lately has been the pandemic. Because, you know, we had had an exodus to the urban environment and a lot of talk about urban environments. And the pandemic really kind of turned that on its head. And so it's interesting, you know, the high-rise downtown, you know, really social environments that people had been seeing, you know, have not had such a great time lately. And, you know, the, the other thing that hard to kind of tease out from that is, is how much of that is a demographic situation? How much of that is a, is a group reaching a certain age, which probably later than their parents, but, you know, having kids it, it, to the extent they're going to have them and then, you know, looking for suburbia, right? So it feels like, you know, there is a slice of, you know, the very top end apartments that have been challenged lately, the top end urban high rise. You know, th- and the other thing is those properties are more expensive to run anyway, right? Right. High rise is just, it's just more expensive. And then the other challenge is when you look at what's happening from a demographic perspective in the United States, what you see is, that the middle class is getting smaller because it's kind of getting eaten up at both ends, right? And at the lower end of the spectrum, we are actually now starting to see some wage increases at the lower end of the spectrum, but that's been a long time coming. 
And, you know, that's not the group that has, I think, the best, you know, expectations going forward of being able to afford, you know, increases. So it's really kind of in between those two places, I think, is the, is the sweet spot. And, you know, you may find that post-pandemic, the urbans, the urban locations come back strong, the urban high-rise come back strong. But I think that's a, you know, that's a risk that you have to kind of price in if you're looking at them. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. I think Class B is definitely, you know, one of those asset classes that are pretty resilient or kind of the best investment at this point. Class A is more expensive and with inflation, some tenants are finding it hard to pay their rent. And there has been migration to the suburbs, like you mentioned, and we've seen it starting way before COVID and COVID kind of accelerated this trend. And a lot of B assets, garden style apartments are in the suburbs, not so much the high rises. And on the other end of the spectrum, like you mentioned, the class C and D, if the tenant base is not strong enough because they lost their jobs or, you know, if they cannot keep up with inflation, then that's going to be very hard for them to pay their rents. And rents are going up across the board. So that's it's very interesting. I have always believed in Class B. I think there's some Class A that are still, you know, can be a good investment. And at this point, I would probably stay away from the the assets that used to be very profitable after the last crash, 2008, it just, you know, things change and you always have to rethink, okay, we're in a different environment. Is this still the, the best investment strategy, the best asset class to invest in? So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about, you know, the process part of multifamily and focus specifically on unit renovations. And it's something that you spend a lot of time on. And this is a big part of our business plan and basically how we increase income. Can you walk me through the renovation process at Blue Lake and, you know, what we do and how we do it? So, you know, one of the fundamental assumptions that you have is that what people most react to and most appreciate is upgrades that are made in the bathroom area and in the kitchen area, particularly kitchen area, right? And then the other thing is, is that when you're making improvements, if you make an improvement on apartment level, it has a certain effect on that one renter. But if you make an amenity improvement, it potentially could have an effect on the whole property, right? So those are the challenges and the things you have to weigh because what you want to do is you want to create a consistent customer experience to the extent you can. Right. When you buy a property, you may find that there are parts of it that are obsolete relative to you know, what people would do now. But that doesn't mean you know, it's not great. Right. That means that it has some things that you wouldn't design in today, but there are potentially you could have a location or you could have other aspects of this property that really make it appealing. So what you want to do is try to get, get an understanding of what the property wants to be, you know, who the customer is, what they're looking for, and how to deliver it to them consistently across the whole experience, right? So, you know, typically that means in capital invested in kitchen upgrades and things that you can really see and feel and react to, you know, things that show up on a website and that show up when you're walking through, through an apartment and that make people feel good. They make, it, they make it look clean. They make it look modern, right? So that from an apartment interior perspective, that you want to try to accomplish that, but you want to also consistently, you know, be consistent with the amenities that you provide at the property so that they're both 
you know, that there is a consistent flavor for this property and the consistent message of this property in terms of what customer they're trying to appeal to and what experience they're trying to offer, right? And, you know, one of the things that's, you know, maybe you call it the secret sauce, but one of the things that is most important to all this is the staff of the property because they provide the face of the interaction, right? And they provide the communication with the residents, whether it's new residents or renewal residents, right? And so you want them to be professional and consistent in the same way that the property is, right? And so then, you know, once established, what does this property want to be? What improvements does it need to get there? Then there's the implementation, which, you know, involves heavily with the staff and, and relies on their competence and their capabilities, you know, and then also communicating the whole experience to the customer. But it's a big logistical challenge and it's fraught with challenges, even when you're not in pandemic shortages and it cost increases that we're dealing with currently. So it's a, it's a hard thing to pull off and you for a amount of time because you have to take those units offline in order to renovate them. But it pays off in terms of the overall investment of the property and it changes the perception of the property. And frankly, that changes the reality of the property, right? And that's the kind of thing that, you know, gives the investor something to be very happy about, right? But it also gives the tenants, the residents, something to be happy about in terms of having a place that they can feel proud of and that they can enjoy. Yep, absolutely. And when we are looking at renovating an apartment building, first and foremost, we're looking at the comps and we have our own analyst that calls each comp and asks, hey, how much are you charging per one, two, and three bedrooms? Is it renovated or not? And what's the renovation scope? So we know if the market has appetite for stainless steel appliances, for instance, or granite countertops, because not all of them, you know, do, and you don't want to be the nicest asset. You want to be kind of second or third. So, because you don't want to be pricing tenants out. And we're working actually with a construction management company. Once we have the scope, we agree on the scope of exactly what we want to do. And usually it's stainless steel appliances, you know, new granite countertops. We remove the carpet and we put, you know, forward flooring. We have new hardware package. We paint the units. So that's kind of part of what we do. We send everything out for bids and through the CM, the construction management company, and then the bids come back. We choose, you know, you go over the bids, you choose the company you want to work with based on their experience, reputation, the pricing. And we do that before we even complete the transaction while we're during the due diligence process. And then we start working once we close the deal and we work with the construction management company that manages the different vendors because you have a vendor that just installs the floorings and another vendor that brings and installs the appliances. And it usually takes anywhere. It depends on the scope because we've renovated very lightly. You know, I think it was around twenty-five or $3,000. And there's some heavier lifts that can be ten, twelve thousand dollars $12,000. Obviously, they take more time. So renovation time takes, I would say, between seven days. That was the shortest to two, two and a half weeks on average. So that's kind of how the process looks like from, you know, our point of view. I mean, we can talk about renovations without talking about the increase in costs. And we all know that costs are on a rise, you know, and when it comes to materials, when it comes to payroll, what do you see on your end and how do you deal with the increases in costs when it comes to unit renovations? 
Well, you know, when we're doing this, we're typically doing it on some level of scale that gives us some resiliency of pricing relative to what the market's doing. We're also committing to do it for a certain amount of time. And so you're getting vendors, you know, that you have professional relationships with. And, you know, there's a lot of business on the table. So it's not, it's not like when I go to buy a refrigerator from my house, you know, it's not like that. You know, you don't control it. And all these, you know, all this equipment backed up in the Port of LA, that's a reality, right? But typically, you know, we get people that are really trying to make it work from a supplier perspective, right? So you do have that going for you. And, you know, particularly if you've contracted in advance of all this, you know, you may have some price protections in that. But I think that's by and large, you know, what gets us decent pricing is this sense from the contractors that we work with that there's more work to be had. And it's, it's not just about this next department or the next hundred departments, right? It's a relationship and they have, right. you know, they have to have profitability to stay in this business, but they know that we do too. So typically that's the kind of a conversation that you can have. You're also going to you bid these things out to different vendors and all the time looking at how else can we do these things, right? Just because we did it one way before, you know, yeah. maybe there's other technologies or other approaches that we could use that could be more efficient than what we're currently doing and, and we could save money that way. And, you know, the other thing that helps, I think, is, you know, from my perspective, there's always an undercurrent of urgency when you're doing this because, you know, you've entered into this program and the best thing that you can do is complete it as soon as you can. Because yeah. if there's going to be an opportunity from the capital markets and you don't know when that's going to happen, you want to be as open to that opportunity as you can be. And that means to be, you know, get through the process as soon as you can and be in a position if the capital markets decide to reward you to be able to take advantage of. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I want to switch gears and talk about a more fun subject in this strategy section of the podcast, which is increasing income. So many ways to do that. And of course, on top of unit renovations, we're also focused on increasing income to add to the bottom line to increase cash flow. But what I want to ask you is what are the top two or three strategies, in your opinion, that you've used to increase the profitability of a deal, of especially multifamily deal? So the first and kind of most powerful thing that I feel like you can do is say, you know, where are we with rents relative to where we should be? And where are we with occupancy relative to where we should be? Because those numbers are much bigger than anything else that you're typically discussing, right? So there's other things that you can do in addition to that. And those things make sense. And the thing is, you know, the thing that's tempting about all this stuff, right, is if you're pick up $100 of NOI, right? Whether it's an expense or, or an income and you cap it at a 10, that's $1,000, right? But you're not capping things at a 10 nowadays, right? And so it's a lot more than $1,000 to get $100, right? In terms of the value of the asset, right? So anything that you can do, you know, when I look at it, I don't think, well, we're going to have another $100 next year. That's not what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, you know, we're going to sell a perpetuity of $100, right? Now that's not always the case, because you know, some things will burn off the value, but generally that's what I'm hoping for. And that's what I'm trying to do is figure out a way so that I can make an extra hundred dollars on this deal this month so that I can make a potential buyer see that he could make that hundred two and have him underwrite that money. And it doesn't matter to me if it's an expense savings or if it's an income savings. And the biggest thing you can do to impact income is typically how you manage occupancy and rent. So that to me is the most important thing. Are we doing the leasing we're doing? Are we renting at the rents we're renting? And that's what I always keep my eye on first and foremost. After that, 
you know, you look at this property and say, what other things are available here that other people are making money on? What are, or, or that we could make money on maybe that nobody else has, right? Sometimes that happens. You have a unique asset that people will pay you something for. And so those are the kinds of ancillary things that, you know, those hundred dollars also get capped at something, you know, at some number that's significantly less than a 10, right? So anything that you can do, any dollar that you can add yep. is a, a significant value. What you're always going to do is prioritize the biggest dollars you can add, right? Yeah, uh, so absolutely. Because one of the biggest challenges in this business is when you talk to property managers, you know, the biggest thing that they have to deal with is a dissolution of focus. You know, there's a lot that goes on every day on a property. Before they talk to me, they do a hell of a lot of stuff. So I have to be very judicious about what and when I ask them to do if I want them to make sure that they're focusing on the leasing and the rent rates and the renovations that we're doing. To make sure that those things are first and foremost where they're at, except to the extent that I have some other thing that takes priority, which happens, but you just have to realize that when you ask them for something, you know, that there's typically a cost to that. And you have to say, right, what are they giving up in order to do this? Yep. Because time is limited. Yes. So prioritization is always critical. Yep. Absolutely. And earlier you were talking about, you know, other income, anything else that you can add beyond rent. So what we do usually, you know, when we're looking at a property, we're purchasing a property, we already have a plan, whether it's to add Amazon lockers, for instance, and then you charge everyone five to $7 a month, that creates an additional income. If you're adding reserve parking, and you charge 20 to 30, $40 a month, if you're adding washers and dryers, you can add 40 to $50 a month. So all these things, they do add up. And as you mentioned, it's not only important for the immediate cash flow, but also every dollar the property makes, you get more when you sell it because there's a relationship between the income of the property and how much you get for it. It's in the property that generates more money will will be sold for a higher you know amount because as an investment, it's more valuable than let's say an identical property across the street that makes eighty five percent of the income. So yeah, all of that, you know, and we're always trying to think, how do we balance between increasing rents and occupancy? You can increase rents, you can double rents, but then your occupancy is going to go down. And usually it does when you increase the rents because fewer people can or want to afford it. And then the question is, where is that fine you know, line? Where is the right balance where even if you're at 98% occupancy right now and you're charging, let's say, $1,000 rent, but when you raise it to 1400 you're not going to be at 98% occupancy you're going to be at 96 let's say or 95 but the bottom line you know you're going to end up with more money by the end of the month because you have maybe a fewer tenants but you have more tenants that are paying higher rents and you always need to you can do it by you know trial and error change the rents and see or you can use other softwares that every day they generate, they do that market research and automatically generate the maximum rents that the software believes using technology is the best rent to maximize profitability. So there are all kinds of ways, you know, to do that. And it's, it's interesting. It's, it's never the same. It's always volatile. You always have one month with a little bit more, a little bit less, you know, occupancy. But the main thing is to look at, okay, have we made more money? Were we able to collect more money? You always don't want to bring tenants that are not going to be able to pay the higher rent, even if they sign the contract. And the other thought of that, Ellie, is that even if you do not sell the property, if you refinance, you'll be able to get more yeah. proceeds. 
Yeah. If you, if you, have, you know, whatever, whatever your income is, even if you're not selling it, you're still going to get more value. Yep. Absolutely. Cause if you're thinking about it, your LTV of 75% can generate you more in loan proceeds because now the value has increased. So yeah, absolutely. It's either, you know, refinancing or selling. It really impacts the amount of money you can make and how much equity you can pull out of the property. Absolutely. Love talking about increasing income and pulling out equity. That's one of the, you know, obviously the, the best parts of real estate. We've now reached the lightning round questions or quick questions that I ask every single guest. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. So Neil, what's your favorite hobby? So I am, in fact, between hobbies. I just sold a boat that I had for a long time because ah. uh, my sons have grown older and they're not sailors anymore. So I have to figure out, you know, I'm between hobbies. So we'll have to figure out what, what the next thing is. <laughs> I haven't heard of being between hobbies. That's interesting. So you're looking for something that you can share with your sons. Well, but- no, because they're so, they're, you know, one's in junior high school, the other's in college and they kind of do their own things now. So it's like, I got right. to figure that out for myself. Got it. Okay. All right. What's the one thing that people don't know about you? Well, it's funny, you know, one thing that when you said, you know, be bold, you know, one thing that, that I thought of immediately when you said that was, you know, of a time when I wasn't. I went for a run and my sister had a little sailboat and I borrowed it for a weekend and I was in Newport and I was across on this dock from a 110 foot yacht. And I come back from my run and I look over and this pregnant woman falls into the water. Wow. Between the dock and the, and the yacht, you know? So... I climbed down the ladder a bit and I said, how are you doing? And she said, I'm drowning. I said, okay, so grab the bottom rung of the ladder. So she grabbed the bottom of the rung of the ladder. And I said, grab it now with your other hand. I said, now I want you to just breathe. <laughs> because once she had once she had her hands on the ladder, she wasn't panicked. And I wasn't, I didn't want to go into the water until she wasn't panicked. So I waited until she wasn't panicked. And I said, I'm going to jump in behind you and I'll help you up. So that's how we got out of the water. But I, you know, it, it wasn't one of those jump in the water and help her. I was like, no, no, you find the ladder first and then I'll be clear. All right. And she, she was fine. She was okay. She was fine. Yeah. She was fine. Yeah. yeah. She said, I, I did better than I thought. I said, yeah. You <laughs> All right. Neil, what book are you currently reading or recently read and, you know, you really liked and impacted you and you would like to share with me and the audience? So I was reading a book with my, the whole family was reading a little bit of the book every night. And the book that we had was The Count of Monte Cristo by uh, Dumas. And, you know, the thing about it is, is that, you know, a lot of people might say that's a lot of book. But since we had read previously Les Mis by Victor Hugo, they were relieved when we read. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a lot of fun. That In the end, they really liked both of them, I think. All right. Interesting. It's interesting you can convince your sons to sit and read or listen with you. That's impressive. They're very tolerant. <laughs> All right. And so finally, Neil, what's your advice for leaving an extraordinary life? So for me, when I get that question, I say, please ask Ellie. <laughs> I guess the one thought that I have about that is, you know, what I have said to my sons all along the way is the more you know about who you are mm. and the more comfortable you are with who you are, I think the more enjoyable your experience will be here. Interesting. That's not very easy to do sometimes. Very interesting. 
Good advice. Good advice. Well, Neil, I want to thank you for being on the show. I know you have a super busy day and I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me and to record this. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And I hope that you you enjoy Phoenix and I hope you see some good properties. <laughs> well, dude, thank you so much, Neil. All right, guys, that's it for today. I hope the discussion left you a little bit more knowledgeable than 30 minutes ago or 45 minutes ago. If you would like to speak with me about investing in multifamily or with our director of investor relations, Jeanette, be sure to complete our new investor form on bluelake-capital.com. And until then, guys, be bold, be great, and create your own kind of extraordinary life. I'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.